we came down to chapter 95, and uh, I'm sure we noted yesterday the change in emphasis, change in attitude and approach uh, that occurred there beginning with chapter 90. And uh, that carries on here through the next chapters, beginning to point us to God, because we have our frustrations, and yet the only real answer to our deepest longings, as the New Testament says, is God himself. So he says, O come, let us sing to the eternal, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Again, Ephesians 2.20 and other places, how he is the chief cornerstone, and he is our rock. That is emphasized through all the prophecies throughout the Bible, really. He's even referred to as the rock in the desert. So he is the rock that we cling to. Sometimes people use that expression uh, about their mate or whatever. Well, that's my rock. That's what I cling to. There's the strength. Rock is hard. It is strong. And we need strength in our lives. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise to him with psalms. I am forever thankful for the work Dwight Armstrong did as commissioned by his brother to set the psalms to music. Uh, we sing those every week, sometimes more than once a week, and all through the holy days. Uh, it's nice to be able to simply sing these prayers and these uh, poems and various things, songs to God. For the Eternal is a great God and a great King above all gods. Why would you look anywhere else? In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is his also, both in terms of the numbers of people on the earth and the hills or governments, but also the physical creation itself he made, and it belongs to him. The sea is his, and he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. He looked upon the deep there in Genesis, and out of it he brought dry land. For he is our God, and we are the sheep of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, we have our opportunity today. Today is our day of salvation. Uh, if you go to Hebrews 4, it talks about today. And it's referring there essentially to the weekly Sabbath and the millennium to come. So, this is our opportunity. This is the time we need to respond, to hear God. Harden not your heart, as in the provocation, as in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work. He gave great miracles to deliver them, and then they tempted his patience, they tempted his deliverance, and it set them back 40 years because they just wouldn't believe God and trust him to take care of them in the way that he said he would. So he's telling us now there are terrible, trying times coming. And we cannot murmur, we cannot complain, we cannot distrust or not believe that God can and will take care of us just as he did them. He put them in a place where they were hopeless and helpless. And he is going to put us in pretty much the same boat. And 
we have to trust and believe that we will be taken care of if we serve Him. Don't do that. Forty years long was I grieved with this generation and said, It is a people that do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. It has always been about attitude. It has always been about heart. It has always been about serving Him and trusting Him and believing Him and worshiping Him with our heart. We did it with our mouths. We did it perfunctorily with the Sabbath, the holy days, and various things. But our hearts were not there. They weren't in it the way they had been even earlier in the 50s and 60s in the church. It began to drift. And God couldn't abide that. He doesn't want us half-hearted. He wants us whole-hearted. Whatever our hand finds to do, do with our might. So this goes all the way back. Why do the prophets keep talking about when you turn to me with your heart? Because that's the problem. Out of weakness, out of temptation, out of difficulty, out of whatever, we may make mistakes. But where is our heart, really? I think you can say about David, even though he made some serious mistakes, he repented with all his heart. He, he turned to God with his whole being. And that is the key, is having our hearts right with God. He can forgive a lot, but if insipid is not what he wants. Unto whom I swore in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. And the rest is just ahead. And we want to enter. So we have a job to do to get ready for it. 96. O sing to the eternal a new song. Sing to the eternal all the earth. So, a different song, a different approach, a different attitude. We sing these songs. We sing this one, in fact. It's been set to music. Sing a new song to the Eternal, or to the Lord. He says he'll even give us a song nobody else has. We already covered that yesterday, I think. Sing to the Eternal. Bless His name. Show forth His salvation from day to day. The way we live, the attitudes we have, it's a day-by-day process. And our judgment is a day-by-day process. Declare His glory among the heathen, His wonders among all people. Now, that has to be done as well. We have to be a light on a hill, a city on a mountain, that the whole world can see. And we declare His glory among the heathen by the way we live before Him and worship Him. Uh, We're not much of a blip on the screen yet, are we? Hardly anyone even knows we're here. God will have to exalt His people when He brings His remnant together, and He will have to protect them and bless them in such a way that people will take notice of them. I don't know that we even want too much notice yet, but the time will come when God will very dramatically do that. And even the, let's say, more active part of the work at the end will be to declare it to the heathen, and to all people. A spiritual heathen, or spiritual Gentile in that sense, is anyone who is not a spiritual Israelite today. Physical Israelites are counted among the heathen, because they are not part of the new covenant, as we discussed yesterday. 
For the Eternal is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. If there's any answer to all these things, they're pointing us that way now. Turn to God. Look to God. Praise God. Glorify Him. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Eternal made the heavens. Who, have, who created the universe? Well, you can pick yourself out a god somewhere, but who is behind all this? Why well, might as well go to number one while we're at it. Why well, have number two or three or five or forty in the universe? Go to the big guy. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. If we want to see his honor, his glory, his majesty, look, look at the full moon coming over the mountain over here. You can't stand except in awe at some of the things we see that God has made. Give to the eternal, O you kindreds of the people. Give to the eternal glory and strength. Look to him. Give to the eternal the glory due to his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Our biggest offering today that we can bring is not a physical offering. It's not a monetary or a dollar offering. The biggest offering we can bring is the sacrifice, a living sacrifice of ourselves to set an example for the world, to set an example for each other, and to glorify and, ma and give Him majesty in the way that we live and walk upon the earth. That's the greatest offering we can bring. People have brought offerings of money before. They brought bulls and goats prior to that. That was necessary for their attitudes. And offerings in a physical way are needful for us as far as our attitudes and, and everything that we need to do. But the biggest sacrifice, the most important and far beyond anything monetary, is you. You sacrifice yourself to him and he says you show that by the way you treat each other. That's the way we do it. Because the way you treat each other is how I will assess how you treat me and what you think of me. That's a big order in itself. Because it's easy to say, I love the Lord. It's really hard to say, I love that scoundrel who lives four doors down. Or six or eight or whatever, you know. It's, uh, I didn't count that. I don't even know who's four down from me. But you, know, you, you get the point. If we don't love each other whom God has called, we don't love Him, He says. It's the way it is. It's the way He looks at it. it. may not be the way we look at it all the time, but then we don't always look at it God's way, do we? Sometimes we look at it our way, and our way isn't the right way. Verse 9, O worship the eternal in the beauty of holiness or in my margin, the Hebrew is more accurately, in the glorious sanctuary. So he's reiterating that thought. We are his temple, his sanctuary, and how we treat each other within this, and the way we worship and treat each other, is how we are reacting and acting within his temple, because we are the temple of God, compositely and individually. Beauty of holiness is nice, too. Uh, perhaps could be translated that. 
because his temple, his sanctuary, is a holy place. And we are here to make it holy. Holy means set aside or special. Don't as we as human beings want to, wouldn't it be nice if we could think of ourselves as special in a good way or as important or worth something maybe would be a way to put it, uh, departing from pride, but of worth, of use, of value, let's say. And God lays that on us. He says, Put treasure in heaven. Treasure in a bank means nothing. Uh, they break in, they steal, they defraud you, they do whatever with your retirement account and your pension and your Social Security or whatever. It's all going away. But the treasures in heaven of serving and giving and helping uh, will be there. That's, that's a bank that cannot be destroyed. And God has set us aside to be worthwhile. It's what he's done to be holy, set aside or sanctified for a particular purpose, to show forth his honor and his glory to other people, and then to rule the world in honor and glory. And we're working toward that end. We fall very short of it today, but it is a goal and a purpose and a direction we're headed. Fear before him, all the earth, says that they will come and worship before our feet. What a transition that will have to be. <laughs> you know, we are not anywhere near worthy of honor and worship or anything akin to it right now, but we will be through his glorification process. <clears throat> Say among the heathen that the eternal reigns. We're not to be ashamed. We're not to be embarrassed about our Savior and about His Father. We are to proclaim their name far and wide when the time comes, and not to be ashamed at all the way we tended to be in worldwide at times, afraid of persecution, so we backed off and cowered and crabbed and said we were from Ambassador College, not the worldwide Church of God, the true Church of God, or whatever, you, you know, however you might want to put it. Uh, we have to stand tall, we have to stand strong, and we have to stand up for God. That's what we're called upon to do. Say among the heathen, God rules the earth, whether you like it or not, whoever your false prophet is going to be. The world also shall be established that it shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. So, a flash forward even into the millennium here. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar in the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful in all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice. There again is a metaphor for people. Uh, trees don't clap their hands and trees don't rejoice. Uh, people do. And this is symbolic of people. On the other hand, it does say even nature and the earth itself groans because of the oppression and the pollution and everything that has occurred to it. So it's both a literal and a metaphoric thing. Before the eternal, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. This is speaking of the first resurrection. When he comes and then the honeymoon for a year, that's when Peter does get to go where Christ was going. 
says you don't go, uh, we'll, we'll reign on the earth, but that doesn't mean we don't go up there when he comes back for a honeymoon and then come back to reign on the earth. He's coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. So his laws, his ways will be universal. He will be here in sight at all times, he and his father, and so will we. You think you're in a goldfish bowl now? Wait till you're one of the 144,000 in the New Jerusalem where the whole world looks to you and worships you. Wow. (laughs) Hard to imagine, isn't it? We're not worthy of that. If we will do our part and sacrifice ourselves, God will exalt us to that place. Chapter 97, the eternal reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitudes of the islands be glad thereof. We look at our leaders today and say, well, we have this leader, that leader, the world's leaders. There's not a whole lot to rejoice about, is there? God has put the weak in the base and the leadership of the nations, and they're leading us into oblivion and into world war, into death and destruction and slavery. That's that's the goal they have in mind. The earth is not going to rejoice. They're going to think that this new thing that is coming is the answer, but it won't be. They're going to be sadly disillusioned when it finally takes hold and has them in its grip, those that survive. But we're looking to a time when the eternal reigns and everyone is going to be glad. Clouds and darkness are round about him. Righteousness and judgment are the habitation of his throne. But I think that that is true right now is clouds and darkness are about him. They can't see him. They don't know who he is. He's going to come in great splendor, and every eye will see him. But in the meantime, they say the name of God, but they don't know who he is, and it's very obscure. Clouds and darkness. But righteousness and judgment are at his throne. A fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about. Think this isn't prophetic back here? Talking about the day of the Lord, the final fulfillment of it. His lightnings enlightened the world. The earth saw and trembled. The hills melted like wax at the presence of the eternal, at the presence of the eternal of the whole earth. Doesn't Revelation say their eyes will melt in their own sockets? Uh, They'll try to find holes in the mountains to hide in because of the face of him who comes. I had a theory recently introduced to me, well, last year, but more again, that the day of the Lord actually began right after Christ died and was resurrected. And uh, I think there's some merit to the thought. Uh, not that that's the final fulfillment, and it doesn't, the, the last part doesn't go over that long a period of time. It's very finite in terms of the three and a half years of of uh, Satan's wrath, and then a year of the last plagues during the honeymoon of Christ's bride. But there can be something said for the horror that went on in the Middle Ages. Uh, The famines, the pestilences, the black plagues, the wars, and so on. And that part of history is basically wiped out. 
And I think that some of these things do kind of tie in, the more I think about it. Uh, when was history truly changed? I think we can say pretty clearly now that the true promised land and Jerusalem were here. That's a counterfeit. But how was that counterfeit foisted off on the world? We don't know much of what went on from Christ's resurrection until the 15, 16, 1700s. No printing presses, no radios, no television, no internet, no nothing. And what books there were, remember you read about it in grade school, junior high, the Catholic Church had book burnings all over Europe. Wherever they could find books, they destroyed them. Now, why would you destroy all books? What's the point? You're afraid people will learn knowledge? They burned the big libraries, even, Alexandria, to get rid of knowledge. So then the world comes out of the Dark Ages, and what do we have? A completely distorted picture with a new Jerusalem, and nobody knows how it happened or where the old was much. Some of those Templars, Jesuits, offshoots of the Catholic Church and Masons, had had the story. But many of them were killed, and they lost knowledge of exactly where all these things that we're now finding out about are. And they've been looking. The Mormons are Masonic in background, and they're looking, and they haven't found. Brigham Young said it's 50 miles, or within 50 miles of right here, standing in Hurricane, pointed north, but he never found. Has a great deception been leaked upon the inhabitants of the earth or not? Verse 7, Confounded be all they that serve graven images, that boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all you gods. They set up a false god. Satan is the god of this world. And Simon Magus began the Catholic Church, apparently, picked up the pieces of ancient paganism and reinvigorated them, if you will. And Peter told him to go to hell with his money. There in Acts 8. I don't know what part they will play. But I think they will be front and center in some form or fashion. The Catholic Church will even tell you that they started the Islamic religion and created Allah themselves. Will they be able to put all this back together by showing that history? And will the Catholic Church be front and center some way to organize all these religions together with a false god? Somehow, some way, they're going to put it together in such a way that the whole worship, whole world, all religions, all peoples, will worship the beast and the false prophet. Now, we have a plea here in God's Word to us to worship the true God. And not to be deceived 
by that which is about to come down. And it says that even the very elect could be deceived if it were possible. It is going to be so powerful that even those who are most attuned on the earth to God's way are going to be moved by it. They're going to become perhaps somewhat uncertain about it. It is going to be so compelling, so powerful, that even the very elect could be deceived if possible. Thankfully, it will not be possible. But that makes it sound like it's nearly possible, doesn't it? We had better be careful and be sure we're worshiping the true God and not these idols that he's warning us about here. I mean, we can read over this and we'll say, yeah, we shouldn't worship idols, we should worship God. But maybe we should pause and think it through a little deeper and realize what this is talking about and what's coming, because he's talking right here about just before Christ returns. <laughs> Not a good time to be worshiping idols. <clears throat> now notice verse 8. Zion heard. You are Zion. You just heard that, didn't you? Zion heard and was glad. We're glad to know ahead of time and be able, hopefully, to circumvent this and not be caught up in it. And the daughters of Judah rejoiced because of your judgment so eternal. We turn to him with our heart like he's talking about here and, and prepare our heart in the right way. Then we'll be able to make the correct judgment and follow the true God. And we will see his judgment on us that it will be a pleasant and wonderful judgment, but he will then bless us because we are faithful to his way instead of to Satan's way. This is the issue that goes all the way back. It's never, ever changed. Adam and Eve, you guys going to go my way or Satan's way? Here we are again, right on the threshold. We're going the way of the new world order or are we going the true God's way? Satan is behind it again, just like he was then. And if anything, he's honed his skills on 6,000 years of mankind. And he's pretty good at what he does. He is the greatest counterfeiter, the greatest deceiver in the universe. And he's sly and coy, and he can transform himself as an angel of light. He can make himself appear as an angel of light and is just about ready to do that. How do you know the difference? There may some, be some kind of a spectacular coming that sounds like the Scriptures, whether it's with modern technology or appearing as Christ coming in his glory. Who knows just how it'll come down. But it's going to be pretty convincing. Now, how are you going to know the difference? By your emotions? By what your eyes see? What your ears hear? Loud trumpets? Wow! How are you going to know the difference? God's laws. God's ways. 
the true Sabbath, the holy days, God's truth, God's Word. It is the anchor. For you, eternal, are high above all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. It even says, doesn't it? Or implies that the part of the taking of the mark of the beast is we won't be able to work. I think that implies the Sabbath, certainly. I don't think they're going to want to keep the Sabbath. I don't think Satan will want to keep the Sabbath. Never has. Why? It celebrates the millennium and the reign of Christ. He may not want that. He has his own day. That could be a key issue. Doesn't Exodus say that the Sabbath is a sign between God and his people? Is that not reiterated in Isaiah 58 and other places? And the eunuchs, those powerless ones that keep his Sabbath, we are essentially powerless, aren't we? And he will exalt the eunuchs, the spiritual eunuchs. Verse 10, you that love the eternal, that would be us, wouldn't it? Hate evil. He preserves the souls of his saints. He delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. Oh, there's your hope. God's promise, his word. He'll deliver us out of the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. See, he's in clouds and darkness to others, but to those who see his way, light is sown or planted for the righteous. It's planted, it will grow, it will increase, and then we will be enveloped in light. The kingdom of God, city of God, no need of moon or stars or sun there, because the Father and the Son are the light of it. And it's the upright in heart who will be glad for that. Rejoice in the eternal, you righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of His holiness. If we were to trust in ourselves, we'd be in trouble, would we not? We can trust Him because He is righteous. He is holy. We have issues, but He does not. So we can look to Him. He is our rock and our hope. Then he says in chapter 98, O sing to the Eternal a new song, for He has done marvelous things. So this is apparently speaking right after the marvelous things that He begins to do, perhaps at His return, and He gives us a new song that no one else can sing. A new song, for He has done marvelous things. Now, that could have applied many times. They came across the Red Sea, and then you had the song of Miriam and the song of Moses, and they did sing God's glory after what he had done for them. But the biggest and final fulfillment is yet ahead of us. He has done marvelous things, and we can go back and sing some of these songs of Moses that have been put to music, and even now we can sing them. But there's one yet ahead that nobody but us can sing, only the bride. His right hand and His holy arm has gotten Him the victory. We do sing this one. It's in our hymn book. The Eternal has made known His salvation. His righteousness has He openly showed in the sight of the heathen. 
I think this is speaking of the first resurrection. He will change us in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at His return. And it will be openly so that every eye will see it. And His salvation will be made known. Now, we have the hope of salvation lying within our hearts now, don't we? But we haven't experienced it yet. And the heathen haven't seen it yet. They haven't been impressed by it yet. But they will. It's coming. He has remembered His mercy and His truth toward the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Now, in some ways, when He brought them out of Mitzrayim and they crossed the Red Sea, the whole world heard of it, knew of it, so much so that when they came 40 years later into the Promised Land, those peoples that were populating it at the time feared and trembled because they had seen what God had done. And not only did he open the Red Sea, but just as they came into the Promised Land, he did a sequel. You know how they do movies, Part A, B, or, or Rocky 14, or whatever it is now? He did a sequel. He rolled back the Jordan at flood time. That must have reminded them of all the stories they'd heard of the Red Sea right there. Jericho might have even been in sight of it. it wasn't very far across the river. I bet it did put fear in their hearts. Now I completely lost where I was here, down about... Uh, yeah, we're in 98. Openly showed in the sight of the heathen. That's, that's what's ahead of us. He has remembered His mercy and His truth toward the house of Israel. He hasn't forgotten it. What he did then, he's about to do. He said in an even greater way, <clears throat> this will be a, another sequel. But this is going to be the biggest and the best. Usually the sequels get less and less impressive in, in the movie world. But here it's going to get more impressive. The climax will be greater. So, verse 4, Make a joyful noise to the eternal, all the earth. Make a loud noise and rejoice and sing praise. The beauty of it is, is those that survive all this can change their attitude and they can be preserved and they can live in peace and harmony and prosperity and under the laws of God with total security throughout their lives. All they have to do is accept the Lord <laughs> in a much greater way than the Protestants would tell you today. You know, they will have to accept His way of life, accept His rulership, and then things will be fine. That's really all we have to do. But how hard is that? You and I agree with that, don't we? We understand that. We know His law is good and righteous and it converts the soul and all those things He says about how His law is just and holy and right there in Romans. But we do have a terrible time controlling our thoughts and our minds and our feet and our hands and doing what we're supposed to do. That is our nature. And I don't understand not being that way. Maybe I have a small glimmer, but I have trouble understanding it being so human and carnal and selfish and everything that goes with being a human being. But then I read those scriptures that say that that will be changed. And you no longer have 
any desire to do anything wrong. You'll never have any negative thoughts again. You'll never be depressed or in self-pity. Never have loneliness or frustration or any of these things that humans suffer with ever again. Have the very nature of God. It's not just a few things we have to change here. God has to simply, truly convert us from flesh to spirit. And we don't understand and can't what that really is. We understand the mystery. We understand what God is going to do. But we can't even imagine the difference in how we will approach life. It's just, it's beyond our comprehension. But they're going to see the salvation of God. They're going to see us rise to meet Him in the air and go back to His Father's throne for a wedding supper and marriage and a year-long honeymoon and then come back down to rule them. They're going to see the whole process. And He's going to be wearing a sword and on a white horse, His vesture dipped in blood and His saints with Him, as Revelation says, when He comes back that second time. And then it will not be to rapture us away on a honeymoon, to use the world's term. They have a counterfeit, but they don't know what it means. It will be to come back and reign on the earth. Then not only will they see all this happening, then they will begin to experience it. Verse 5, sing to the eternal with the harp, with the harp and the voice of a psalm, with trumpets and sound of cornet, make a joyful noise before the eternal, the king. Let the sea roar in the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell in therein. Let the floods clap their hands, let the hills be joyful together. All nature, all people are going to be so happy to see the kingdom of God. Well, there's a few that might not right off the bat. I don't know about that. We just got suckered by the New World Order. What about this new guy? Is this just another one of the same thing? Be rain all over the earth. Everything's going to start turning green and being beautiful. The desert's blooming as a rose everywhere. Somebody's going to say, I'm not keeping that feast of tabernacles. That's Remember those Jews of Egypt, Mitzrayim? Some of those people who've had ins and outs with Israel and slavery back and forth and have departed from God, going to be a bit skeptical. But then the rain stops. No rain for a year. Feast of Tabernacles time. I think I'll go to the feast. A little change of attitude begins to come. Everybody's got rain but us. We're the only ones that didn't keep the feast. Hmm. Duh, well, but then they will. Everything will turn out right. So the whole earth is going to be in peace and happiness together. Verse 9, Before the Eternal, for He comes to judge the earth. With righteousness shall He judge the world and the people with equity. See, that shows right there it's not just a goats on the left, sheep on the right type of thing when he returns to reign. He's going to rule with righteousness for a thousand years, and he will 
rule the world and the people with equity. In other words, they're still human. They still have a judgment period like you and I are having right now. And he will give them time to show their willingness to serve him, to obey him, to follow his way. And then he will make righteous judgments. Be a peaceful, loving, kind reign that Christ has on the earth. We're going to get to chapter 99. The eternal reigns. Didn't we see that back in 97? It's interesting. You have the beginning of 99 says the eternal reigns. 98 says, O sing to the eternal. 97 says, The Lord reigns. 96 says, O sing to the eternal. Verse 95, Come, let us sing to the... Or chapter 95, Let us sing to the eternal. We're getting a pattern through these chapters that he keeps drilling it into us. Sing a song to the Lord and understand He reigns. He reigns in the universe now. He has not yet taken over the earth completely. He's letting Satan have his way for another short while. Then he will be bound, and even that will be the case. So 99, the eternal reigns, let the people tremble. He sits between the cherubims. Let the earth be moved. The eternal is great in Zion, and he is high above all the people. We can be thankful from Hebrews 12 that he calls us Zion and Jerusalem. We can be thankful we know where the true Zion and the true Jerusalem are and the actual physical place of refuge on the earth and know that he wants to rule in Zion. We got a we got a leg up on this deal, brethren. We can be there. We can be some of the founders. That's where he's going to be. I want to be where he is. He says he is going to come and dwell with his people in Zion. This is before the millennium, Zechariah two and three and four, and other places. Let them praise your great and terrible name, for it is holy. The king's strength also loves judgment and does establish equity. You execute judgment and righteousness in Jacob. Notice how he's lifting us above ourselves. We're not talking about ourselves much here. The psalmist is not talking about himself and his trouble much here. But a total change. Now, instead of looking at ourselves and, oh, pitiful, poor me, now we're looking at the greatness and the power and the majesty and the glory of God. Because we don't amount to much. We aren't much. We're nothing, really. But He's something. And we can become like Him and become God ourselves. So if you look at yourself, you feel pretty bad. So let's not look at ourselves so much. Let's look at Him. Then you feel better. I feel better when I read these than I do when I'm just sitting pondering my own shortcomings and faults and problems and and uh, wallowing in self-pity. I rarely do that. No more than once a day anyway. <laughs> all day long. No, I'm just kidding. But you know what I mean. We're subject to all kinds of negativity and difficulty and feeling sorry for ourselves and ad nauseum. Let's not get there. Let's concentrate on God and, and His greatness because that's, that's what's before us here. 
But I, I want to make the point. Let's not miss that that's what we need to be doing. Because that's where the answers come from. We have no answers within ourselves. It all comes from Him. Let them praise your great and terrible name, for it is holy. Let's see, I read that in verse 4 too. Exalt you the Lord our God and worship at His footstool, for He is holy. His footstool is the earth, He says. And this is the place that we worship Him from. Moses and Aaron among his priests, and Samuel among them that call upon his name. They called upon the Eternal, and he answered them. Now, if he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, if we call on him, he will answer us too, won't he? Now, they seem more important than we do. Moses, Aaron, Abraham, David, John, Peter, James, Paul. Those are big names, aren't they? Do we fit in there? Well, they're part of the bride of Christ. They may be the leaders more than we are, and yet at the same time, if they're part of the wife and we're part of the wife, then we're in the same category. Will be, can be, shall be. God's already penciled our names in there, hasn't He? He's put them in the book of life now that we're in the church, been baptized, Received His Spirit. Our name is penciled in the book of life. It's not indelible yet. He won't remove it, but we can. So we can be mentioned among these. Moses, Aaron, Samuel. They called on His name. He answered them. And He tells us very clearly, if we will call on His name, in all sincerity, He will answer us. Why is this written except for that? Why is this ancient history even important to record or read unless he plans on doing the same thing with us he did with them? If it's not a lesson for us, then there's no sense in wasting ink. You answered them, O Eternal, our God. You were a God that forgave them. You took vengeance of their inventions, the things that they devised and thought up uh, or people thought against them, God took care of. Exalt the Eternal, our God, and worship at His holy hill, for the Eternal, our God, is holy. Now, he speaks of His holy hill of Jerusalem. He speaks of the mountains of Zion. And it is interesting that they have towers and mountains in the Zion that we're considering. And it says, count the towers in Isaiah but it speaks of the hill of Jerusalem. And if you compare the two sites that I think were the original Zion and the original Jerusalem, one is mountains and the other one's hill. No doubt about it. So that fits the description here. Now, you could find other mountains and other hills, but there's only so many of those that even the world considers the original places. And in fact, the only one they really consider is the one in the Middle East. And there's no mountain there. There are hills, and that's it. They still can't figure out where Zion is. They look down this ridge and down that ridge, and there's no bump <laughs> and no towers and no mountains. So they're still arguing over which one of those ends of the ridge is Zion. It isn't apparent. It isn't obvious. It isn't the joy of the whole land. And you can't count any towers because there aren't any there. Isn't it nice to know that we may be learning where the true 
holy hill of God is, so that we might go there and worship. If we are correct on this, even the church still doesn't know. Most of the church. Only maximum a hundred people have a clue. That's incredible, isn't it? How blessed, how privileged we are. Unbelievable. Almost, not quite unbelievable. Well, the next chapter is only five verses, so we might as well get through a hundred. What does he say at the beginning? Sing to the eternal. A little different verbiage, but the same. Make a joyful noise to the eternal, all you lands. Serve the eternal with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know you that the eternal, he is God. It is he that has made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. You might say, well, this is my son. I made this son. People talk about, let's make a baby. They don't make it. They use the process that God created to make them. But they're his children. He's the one that started the whole thing. We just go through the motions and procreate. But he created all the apparatus and everything that goes. We didn't make ourselves. Mankind might get full of himself and think he does this and he does that. No, God did it. He made us, not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. If we're really looking at things correctly, we are constantly looking to God as creator and maker and sustainer of everything that is and that is good. He made all the things we eat that are good. We may put a lot of junk down there that man has chemically put together, but that's not food. The true food that God made sustains and gives health and life. The junk that man has made is killing us. And yet, even that, we have trouble pulling back from, it seems. Absolute trash, junk. But we've become addicted to it. And it's hard to put it out of our lives. Why do we take something man has perverted and slimed and made unhelpful, detestable, and which creates disease and death and destruction, and we eat it. We need to get things that are as near possibly to the things God made as we can. I mean, even the raw milk you can buy over at the dairy store here. Raw milk in our country is hard to find anymore. But they still use antibiotics over there. They still are allowed by the FDA to use a certain amount of mastitis, stringy milk, in their milk. As long as it doesn't reach above a certain percentage, they can mix it all together and give it to you. They, put, they use feeds that have chemicals and junk in them. It's hard to get anything that's good. 
God is going to turn it around where we raise everything ourselves, we eat only that which comes out of the ground that he made. We need to come to him and be thankful and bless his holy name and try to get as close to the nature that he made as we possibly can in every aspect of life. If we are truly thankful to God, the Creator, the Sustainer, the Healer of our bodies, then we will be doing what we can to be sure that those bodies are as helpful as possible, or as healthy as possible, by eating the things that are helpful. Isn't it a slap in his face to eat junk and then cry out to him to heal us? Think about it. Or do we give in to our appetites in our way, in the world's way, and think, well, it's just physical. It's just physical. We are physical, brethren. And we are supposed to live this physical life in every aspect in a way that will glorify God in heaven. Yeah, some things are just physical, but so are we. And that is how he is going to judge us spiritually, is by how we handle the physical. How we treat each other physically is how he is going to make our spiritual judgment. It's easy to blow something off by saying, oh, that's just a physical thing. Let's just do the spiritual. The spiritual is defined by the physical in our lives. He made us this way. And he said, this is the way to walk. Do things my way as best you possibly can on this earth, and then I will change you to spirit, and then you can rule the earth the way it ought to be instead of the way man has done it. So don't cop out by saying, well, that's just a physical thing. I'm I'm on a spiritual plane here. I just think spiritually as I eat my garbage or as I watch garbage, or listen to garbage, or whatever. That doesn't work. Yeah, it's just physical. A lot of people have used that as an excuse to do what they want to do, rather than doing something which is truly better for them, no matter what the subject on this earth. For the eternal is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. So these things that we're reading about here endure and have endured for thousands of years. They're as apropos today as ever they were, and they'll be apropos in the millennium and the great white throne judgment and then through all eternity. We might as well get in step with the way he does things because that's just the way it's going to be. About five, ten years from now, things are going to change, and they'll never be back like they are now. It will not be allowed. Even the rebellion at the end of the millennium is going to have lots of bodies afterward because that way of life will not ever again be tolerated. Satan is only loosed for a short season and goes out again to deceive the world and all his armies are destroyed. Anyone who rebels against God's way just will not ever take hold again. So the quicker we can depart from evil, do that which is good, as we sing, the better off we're going to be. Let's stop in there for the day and 
finish the service up and sing praise to God and be ready to go out then and fellowship together and do it in such a way that it glorifies God.